ahead and open up there to Deuteronomy chapter 25. As tonight, we're going to cover a, a couple of chapters here that, I don't know, man, in one sense, you know, they're tough. You know, um, if we were to choose topical studies, more than likely we wouldn't choose some of these verses. But this is the beauty of teaching through the Bible is that you get to cover everything. And then as you cover everything and you dig in a little bit, uh, you see what a blessing it is. Um, Remember the context here. Moses is speaking to the children of Israel. And uh, really what he's doing in essence is he's kind of establishing the relationship with God. You know, and um, and one of the things that you'll find in life is that it's not that complicated. I think we make it complicated because we get uh, really religious and it's not to be religion it's to be relationship. And all that God is asking uh, is for us to give him uh, our, our life, to give him our heart to have a desire to not only receive his love, but to reciprocate that love, to obey him, and to love the rest of the world. And as we do that, it's so cool what God ends up doing. And Moses here, he gives him some specifics. And I think in looking at this, we kind of get the heart of God. Uh, We get to see some of his attributes and some of the things that he calls his people to do so that when they go into the land, they would enjoy the land and that they would remain in the land. And, you know, one of the things I want to encourage you guys in to know is that God wants to bless your life. He really does. But the laws, even of the Lord, require that, you know, we need to plant good seed. That's the law of the Lord. He's bound himself to bless those who obey him because that's the way the laws of the Lord work. And as you live a life of obedience, you're going to find that God will bless your life. You know, my heart went out to a guy that came in yesterday to the church. And, uh, you know, he's a homeless guy, but he's kind of got things. I I don't know if this is the right word. He's kind of got things together. And, um, you know, he was saying, uh, I kind of believe in God. You know, I know that he's kind of working and things like that. You know, but this is my deal with God right now. I'm telling him, you know what, I'm okay. I don't need you right now, you know, uh, because I don't want to be like a hypocrite, right? And so I was telling him, you know, because we were just talking about different things. And I said, you know, you know, you can go on, I guess, with that attitude. But it's God that keeps your heart beating. And you need God. You can't do anything without him. And as a matter of fact, the thing that I was sharing with him is that, man, if you want to reach your full potential, if you want to do what you were made to do in life, your destiny, you desperately need God. And you guys, that's the way it is for us, you guys, as Christians, is that we need the Lord, man, to do what he has called us to do in the family, in the ministry, and just to finish that race and, and, and man, one day be able to stand before him and he'll say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And so Moses was a man like that and he gives a message of the Lord. And look what you read here in verse 1. He says, if there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judge may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. Forty blows he may give him and no more lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be 
humiliated in your sight. And in looking at the situation here, remember, you guys, they didn't have police officers. Uh, When there was a crime committed, they would take them down to the city gates and the judges and the elders, and they would then take the case and make a decision. If a crime is committed and the criminal is found guilty, after going through the Jewish justice system, then the sentence would be given for the punishing the criminal. Here we see principles of justice, and we see God, you know, giving the punishment, preventative and punitive. And we even see God, really the main thing in this, is even protecting that individual who's been given the sentence. You know, they wanted to make sure that this individual who's given this, you know, sentence to be beaten, that it doesn't go beyond certain lines. We read right there in verse 3 that 40 blows he may give him and no more lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated in your sight. You know, and, you know, it's kind of cool the way that we see God, um, you know, having that justice in his heart. You know, we know that justice should be served and criminals should be held accountable. We know Proverbs 19.29 says that judgments are prepared for scoffers and beatings for the back of fools. But in God's word, he just wants to make sure that it's justice and that the time fits the crime, so to speak. And, you know, when we read the Bible, we know that 40 is the number of judgment. Um, We know that when God judged the world, it rained on the world for 40 days and 40 nights. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 4, it says that. But here we see the Lord giving that in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 3. And so, you know, what does God teach us? He teaches us, number one, uh, justice. You know, because if it was me, a lot of times what would we do, you guys? We'd say, oh, it's no big deal. Ain't no thing but a chicken wing, right? You go ahead and you get, you know, a lot of times that's our heart. Depending on the type of person you are, some of you guys here would probably say, kill him. You know, I don't like that guy, you know. And so it depends on the type of person you are, but we need to know the type of God that we have that he will execute uh, judgment, he will punish the crime, but he won't exceed the crime. You see, and that's the heart of God. It's been said that justice delayed is justice denied. And here we see that he injures good men who spare the wicked. God wants us to deal with these things. I always tell you guys it's both punitive and preventative that it punishes the individual, and when you see it come to pass, then hopefully it's used to prevent someone else from doing the same thing. Now in verse 4, we have an interesting verse. It says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now by precept, and looking at this right here, I don't know if you guys can visualize it. You've got an ox, and he's you know going around uh, with you know the, the grain... He's, he's turning the millstones, and so the grain is being threshed out, right? And as it's there, imagine the ox is hungry, and they muzzle the ox so it can't eat. And basically what we see is even God says, hey, that's, that's not right. You shouldn't muzzle an ox there while it's treading out the grain. And what we see, you guys, in God's kingdom is that he does care for even the animals, We know in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, it says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, 
and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. You know, one of the things that we do at our house, or I should say when we leave our house, is we always pray. We always pray whenever we're driving down the street, right when we leave, and our daughter always prays for our dog. She does it every single time. And if she forgets to pray for the dog, uh, Shelly reminds her, you need to pray for Chip, you know. And so when in looking at this, I think, well, it's okay to do that. Um, God cares for the animals. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his father's will. Um, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10 says, A righteous man regards the life of his animal. And so in looking at that, we see the precept. Um, and, of course, we need to have a balance, right? Um, nowadays, we're living in some days where I think some people care more about the animals than they do about people, right? And we're living in days where they want to save the whales, but they don't have any problem killing babies, right? It's crazy sometimes. Even sometimes, man, you commit a crime uh, and, you know, you hurt an animal or something and they give you a more severe sentence than if you hurt a, a person. And so, again, we need to have that balance. And God gives us that beautiful balance. It's just truth, you know, justice, but not overboard and caring for animals, but, but not overboard, you know? Um, even Jesus said over in Matthew 12:11 and 12, he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? And so Jesus says, hey, you guys got to know that um, human beings are more important than animals. And we know the reason, right? Because human beings are created in the image of God. Human beings are eternal. I don't know for sure if your, your pet's going to go to heaven. That's still debatable. You know? But I do know this, that um, human beings are created as social beings, as rational beings, and as spiritual beings. And animals are not. You know? um, and so we need to have that balance. Now, the interesting thing, you guys, and looking at that verse right there, verse 4, we know that Paul the Apostle quoted this verse a couple of times in the New Testament. And it's kind of interesting when you look at the New Testament. We see that when Paul would read the Old Testament, it wasn't just precepts. There were principles. And that's kind of something I've always been sharing with you guys. Because he says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9, he said, It is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Now, interesting. Paul says, you know, when I read Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, uh, primarily it's not about oxen. Paul says, when I read that verse in the Old Testament, primarily God is teaching a principle. And that's why when you read the Old Testament, not that you get weird or anything, but you got to look for not just the precepts, you got to look for the principles, the underlying principles of the truths that we see. Now, the point that Paul makes over in the New Testament is that uh, he uses these verses to justify the right and sometimes the necessity of a minister to be compensated and supported by the Lord through the people. He quotes it again in 1 Timothy 5:17 and 18, where it says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine, for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so basically what he says is that 
when you guys take the situation and you the congregation, you take it to the Lord for consideration, it's biblically okay. If that individual is you know, laboring in the word and serving the people and, and the people are giving to the work of the ministry, that it's okay if God would lead to allow them to compensate that servant, to give him time to pray for the people and to study and to serve and to do the things that God's called them to do. In verse 5, it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, I don't know if you guys can follow that. I don't know if you caught that, but it's definitely different, huh, than what we do nowadays and what we would probably expect. You know, there you are, and, um, you know, you've got some brothers, and uh, one of the brothers dies. And so now the wife is there left alone. Now, in those days, what was their welfare system? It was the kids. It was the kids. You better take care of me when I get old, right? And that's why the kids said, then you better be nice to me now, right? <laughs> and so if they had no son, there was a, a, lot, of, a lot of factors that would just kind of, you know, impact this whole thing. Uh, one of the things is that the property, if you married into another family now, would go to a different family. That, in those days, was a huge, huge no-no. Um, another thing, like I mentioned, the, the welfare system. Another thing that would be a factor, and this is the primary reason given here, is that the, the name stops. You know, because even if you had like four uh, sons, you know, they carry on the, the Coronia name or whatever it is, right? I mean, that wasn't the way it worked back then. How did they do it back then? It was, you know, Manny, the son of Tony, the son of Aaron, the son of, you know, and you go on and on. That's the way the lineage ran and, and if one day you had no son then boom you're blotted out and so their way of dealing with it was to take the brother he would marry the wife kind of so to speak and they would have a child and um and carry on the name the property stays in the family now she's got somebody to take care of her you know and i don't know how you guys you know look at that i have to admit personally i kind of had a hard time with that law i was like wow lord that's that's a real interesting law but remember this, okay, a few things. It was a civil law for Israel. It's not for us. And also it was a cultural practice of the time. And if you think about it, it really worked out good in the story of Ruth. Huh. And when you look at that, you're like, you know what? That's probably not too bad after all. Because remember that, how Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, came to the rescue of a young lady who probably would have died all alone in what was a foreign land to her? You know, it worked out good for Ruth and Boaz. You know, if you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 38, this is the only time we see it in the law. It's mentioned in Genesis 38. It's mentioned in Ruth. And one time the Sadducees asked Jesus a question about it. But that's it. But if you go back to Genesis 38, before the law was given, there was an incident there with the sons of Judah. And they didn't want to do the duty of a brother-in-law. And so you guys remember what happened? God killed them, man. God said, Er, Onan, wicked in God's sight. 
And so in looking at this, we see it was important to God. But, but look what we read next in verse 7. It says, But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. And then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And, you know, they kind of try to talk sense into him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, (laughs) and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. (laughs) Kind of funny, huh? You know, and in one sense, it's weird, you guys. Uh, like, they're, like the Lord is saying, okay, you're going to do this. You're going to do this so that this family, that the lineage stops. Then your family will bear the, the shame forever. You know, and so there was a way out. If your wife didn't like it or whatever it was or something about it, you didn't really want it. God didn't, you know, say, okay, then you'll die. God said, no, there's a way out. But this is the way you're going to do it. You're going to live a life of shame. It was a practice for the people, but in the legal sense, we see that here was a way out, that this guy right here doesn't want to comply. They take him down to the elders. They can't talk him into it. And so what ends up happening is she publicly removes his sandal from his foot, and like we read right there, she spits in his face. Which in, of course, those days and even today is the most humiliating thing I think we can see. Uh, One guy said this, The removal of the sandal was likely symbolic of the relinquishment by the man of any claim to his brother's estate since the sandal was associated with the soil or land. Spitting in the face was a sign of utmost disgust. It was an emotion the rejected widow would feel toward her uncooperative brother-in-law and again you saw that huh in the book of ruth chapter 4 verses 7 through 11 aaron asked me well did she spit in his face i said i don't know if she spat in his face you know because everybody wants to go there to that portion but we do know that um that she took off the sandal and so we see as a result of that that the shame of the day was intended to stay not just for him personally but as a matter of fact in the hebrew it's for the entire family Uh, If you have another version of the Bible, most other versions say that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Interesting, huh? Verse 11, it says, If two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall not pity her. You see what I mean? Sometimes you just want to skip over verses, man. You're like, why do we have to teach through the Bible, though? But, you know, you might look at that and you're thinking, well, that's kind of random. But it's not. Because the context is what? Having kids, right? That's the context, man. That you got to allow this family line to carry on. You know, and kids are a blessing. Kids are, uh, you know, we see it. Sometimes I think nowadays we see it as a burden. But, man, that's not what God sees. God says these children are a blessing. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. 
And so that's really the reason for this law. Uh, not only would it be, you know, weird in the sense that, you know, a dis- dis- despicable thing, you know, that the wife would do, but there would be the, the endangering of preventing this man from having children in the future. And that really is the primary reason for that. Besides the indecency of what this woman has done, she's also threatened the capacity of the injured man to have children. And so that's why God says it's kind of interesting. In verse 12, you know, cut off her hand. Crazy, huh? Your eye shall not pity her. That's how important kids are to God. Verse 13, it says, You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God has given you. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. You know, you read the Old Testament and, you know, I don't know, hopefully you guys are are hungry for the entire word of God. But, you know, you pick up the principles of the God that we serve. I mean, we may not necessarily have to do the exact same things that Israel had to do because they were a theocracy, they were governed by God, they were accountable, they lived in a different time frame. But there's principles that we see that I pray uh, we would take to heart and that we would apply to our life. You know, the justice of God, you know, not too little, not too much, you know, caring for animals, providing for those in ministry, you know, looking at this caring for families and really valuing children, valuing children, you know, to have those families. And then we see right here, the next thing is just, you know, being honest people. You know, I I think that you guys, I mean, if you come to church midweek service, more than likely most of you here are are pretty cool, you know, with the Lord and stuff. But but most people out there, you know, when it comes to business, I mean, they just think that I can make as much money off you as I want. And there's a lot of dishonesty taking place. They don't realize that one day they're going to stand before God and give an account. You know, I've told you guys before, it's tough being a salesman. I know there's probably some honest salesmen, but man, you know, I remember the first time I bought a truck, I bought a new car. I think I was 18 years old, and I went into the Toyota dealership. And my mentality was, as, I, as long as I can get a car, I'll be okay, you know. And I didn't do any negotiating or any, neither did they, you know. <laughs> man, I got ripped off. And maybe the guy's justifying it. Maybe he's thinking, well, the guy didn't negotiate with me. You know, he didn't push it. And so I'm just going to make as much money as I can. And God just says, man, that's not right. And there's a, that, an integrity that we need to have in, in, in business, you know, in transactions. He says right here, and looking at this, that honesty actually brings longevity from God. That's how important it is to him. You know, someone comes and they want to buy a pound of coffee, let's just say, okay? And, and so you get the light bag out on the other side of the scale and you rip them off, right? Or maybe you go to purchase some grain from your neighbor and you, you know, use the heavy bag. And, you know, it's an interesting thing. You end up getting more for your money. God says, when that's your heart, 
it's an abomination to him. And he sees all that. And uh, one day they will give an account. Some will die. Some will die because of that. You know, we need to have integrity in our hearts, you guys. We need to instill honesty within the hearts of our children because it doesn't come naturally, huh? What comes naturally for our kids? Lies, you know, dishonesty, things like that. I read one story about uh, this teacher. His name uh, was Fred, and he asked a student named Ken uh, who was struggling during an exam, how close are you to the right answer? And he said, about two seats away, teacher. (laughs) You know, how many of you here cheated in high school? Just out of curiosity, man. No more, though, right? I I thought I caught some Bible college students cheating the other day. I'm like, man, why are you here, you know? (laughs) Thomas Jefferson said, honesty, honesty is the first chapter of the book of wisdom. You know, and in God's sight, you know, we need to have that honesty. We need to have that integrity. You know, you look at this right here, and it's, it's definitely applicable. I look at verse 17. It says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt? How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear you? Therefore it shall be, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, In the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. You know, and God says here, he says, listen, man, when you get into the land and you're there and you you kind of have that relative rest, what I want you to do is I want you to go over and I want you to just wipe out the Amalekites. Um, now, again, God's just. God knows the reasons why. Uh, one of the things he mentions right here is that apparently when they were there in Exodus chapter 17, you can read about it in verse 8 through 16, and they fought the Amalekites, that what we see is that they attacked them from behind. That, you know, even in war there's rules, right? And they attacked them from behind. Notice when they were tired and they were weary and they did not fear God. You know, 1 Samuel 15, 2, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way. Now, you won't read that in Exodus 17, but you see it here, and you see it in 1 Samuel 15. And so what did God say? God told Saul in 1 Samuel 15, verse 3, Go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, both kill Man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And did Saul follow through with that? He didn't, right? And do you remember who killed Saul in the end? It was an Amalekite. Okay? So you can read that for face value and, you know, you got to get a story, uh, I guess you could say, an account. Maybe even for Saul, a personal lesson. But, again, there's more to it, Right? Because what did the Amalekites symbolize? They symbolize our flesh, huh? And God says this, when you get rest, when you get saved, kill the flesh. Put to death the flesh and the deeds of the flesh. If not, 
they'll kill you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You know, um, sometimes it's the devil, man. Sometimes it's the devil. He comes in, he lies to you, he tempts you, he, you know, somehow deceives you into doing something crazy. But usually, it's just your flesh. It's just me. And what ends up happening is if this flesh is not put under control, if I don't crucify it, then what ends up happening is then I become even a greater target for the enemy. And when you get saved, guess who comes into your life? It's, it's God. It's the Holy Spirit. And now that you have that relative rest, now that you have God living inside of you, God says now what you need to do is you need to crucify the flesh. You know, you're like, well, how do I do it? Romans 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. You see, it's a, de- it's a battle that we need to be aware of. And it's kind of interesting in looking at this right here. When we're weary and weak, when we're not inspired, when we're simply tired, when we lose the fear of God, Surprise! There they are from behind, and and we slip into sin. And that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians five sixteen says, "I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh." You know, and I don't know how you guys are doing in your walk with the Lord. I don't know where you're at, man. But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you, man. Just to really be sold out and surrendered, man. To, to be in the Word. To be in prayer. To be fasting. To really be seeking the Lord. Because, man, the Bible says in First Peter 5, verse 8, that the, the devil, man, he's roaring around like a, a lion seeking whom he may devour. And, you know, when you, when you see a lion and they're in there, you know, they're, let's just say they're watching a herd or whatever, who are they going to attack? They're going to attack the ones that are, are straggling, the ones that are lame, the ones that are limping, the ones that are out of fellowship. But when you're in fellowship with God and you're seeking Him and you're you know, really you know, in that pursuit of God, then you make yourself there stronger and it's His strength and He protects you. If not, we end up becoming a huge target. You know, I would just say to you, you know, every morning, I remember one guy said this, conduct a funeral service for yourself, man. <laughs> every morning, man, man, he's dead. You wake up in the morning, you thank God that your heart's still beating, but you wake up in the morning and you say, Lord, I don't want to live for myself. Especially us guys, we tend to be very selfish. And you wake up in the morning and you say, God, I want to live for you. God, I want to live for my wife. If you're married, for my wife. I want to live for my kids. I want to live for you, whatever it is, and whoever you bring into my path. God, I want to live for others. You see, and you crucify the flesh. That's what God wants. Otherwise, what ends up happening, and you may not die, you know, physically. You may not go to hell. But you will miss the calling that God had for your life. Until one day, you, until we come to that point of saying, you know what? I'm going to conquer this man by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
You see, when you read the Old Testament, you have the stories, but then, you know, the Lord just shows you these things that I think we need to take to heart. And when you read the New Testament, and it, that's how it illuminates the Old Testament. It's so cool. We read next in chapter 26 uh, a couple of ceremonies that would take place. It says in verse 1, And it shall be, when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God has given you and put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall go to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. And then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. You know, Moses is saying when you go in there, you know, and you're, you're going to plant and, you know, you're going to, to reap. And then, you know, then you get the, the, the fruit. It comes up. He says when you, when you, when you come to that ploy, place, what you need to do is you need to honor God by giving him the first fruits of all the produce of the ground. Now this was partially to support in the priests and the Levites, but it was primarily to honor God as the one who had blessed them with everything that they had. You know, and it's such an important principle. You know, and even in looking at that, you might think, well, it wasn't God who did it. You know, you're, you're thinking, I'm the one that got the seed and I dug the hole and I, you know, watered it and I cultivated it. And, you know, you're thinking of all the things that you did. You're, it wasn't God. But, but it was, huh? It was God. God gave you the strength to wake up. God gave you the wisdom to do whatever it is you're doing. God is the one that provides for us. See? And in, in giving to him the first fruits... What you're doing is you're acknowledging that, you see. And for us today, you know, I mean, a lot of people ask, well, how does it work with the church? And, you know, what are you supposed to give to the church? And, and here we see a tithe is mentioned, and that's 10%. You know, and I would say that, you know, that's a good place to start, man. You know, some of you here, maybe you're in debt, maybe you can't. And, you know, but this is my encouragement to you. Be good stewards. Dig yourself out of that debt and at least come to that point where you're giving 10%. You're giving the first fruits to God. Because then what you're going to find out, man, is that you cannot outgive God. And then you continue to give more and before you know it, man, it's an amazing thing. Not just giving, you know, necessarily to the church, but giving to the works of the ministry around, you know, that the Lord is blessing, that the Lord is using. Man, I want to encourage you guys in that, man, because what it does is acknowledges to you know, the Lord that you recognize is him, that he's the one that's done this and not you. As a matter of fact, Exodus 22, verse 29, as you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. I mean, don't even delay. Give it to God, boom, right off the top. You see, and in doing this, God really wanted them to remember, you know, how everything went down for them. In verse 5, it says, and you shall answer. So here you go. You bring your fruit. You put it in the basket. You take it to the priest. He puts it there before the altar of the Lord. 
And this is what you are supposed to say. You're supposed to say this. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a Syrian about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number. And there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. And then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. You know, and it's kind of cool. He tells them, this is what you're supposed to say. You know, he tells them, you know, you've got to memorize this or maybe you're reading it or whatever. The history of how God took a nobody and made them, I mean, a big time somebody, made them a nation. You know, and for us, we wouldn't say the exact same words. But, you know, for us, you know, we would acknowledge that apart from him, um, we have no hope. Apart from him, we would be dead. Apart from him, we'd be losers, you know, and how God has blessed your life. You know, maybe you're here today and maybe you're financially blessed, you know, in that sense. And that's great. You know, it is totally the Lord. But some of you here are even richer than that. Huh? Because God has given you a home. Maybe you don't own it. Maybe you do. It doesn't matter. But there's a home. There's a sanctuary. There is love in your life. There's peace. There's joy. There's hope. There's life. There's a relationship with God. You are so blessed. And God says, man, I want you to remember that. And so when they would go and they would give their their tithe as God has brought them into the land, you know, just to go and just to say, man, look at what God has done. You know, when you go back to the very beginning right there, it says that, you know, my father was a Syrian there in verse five, probably speaking in reference to, uh, you know, the wife of of Jacob, Rebecca, Isaac. There they actually the both wives, they all came from there. Jacob spent 20 years there in that land. And, you know, there he goes, and he goes into the land that God had called him to. But then, if you remember, there was a famine in the land that they would have died. But what ended up happening? God sent Joseph to Egypt. He preserved not only the whole world, but he preserved the nation of Israel. I mean, they would have died without God, right? And he says, look at what God has done. God took this guy. They're about to die and then, so they end up going to Egypt. Now, when they go to Egypt, there's 70 people. There's 70. And that's not a whole lot. But by the time they were done, there were over 3 million people. 3 million. And you're like, well, that, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, I guess it happens. Yeah, but remember, this happened to slaves. This happened to slaves who were being afflicted by the Egyptians, totally mistreated. Not only that, not only did they multiply, but God brought them out of the land, you know, with a a mighty hand, with a long, outstretched arm. 
great terror, signs and wonders. And not only did he bring them out of Egypt, he brought them into the promised land. You know, it was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. You know, and I've told you guys before, you know, that that, you know, to me anyways, it, it kind of means the land that has everything you need and everything you want, you know, because we need, you know, we kind of need milk. So let's say that, right? And we kind of like honey, right? We're supposed to, you know, I, mean, I like honey, chocolate, we'll say, you know, something like that. And there's some truth to that, you know, man, when you become a Christian, God will give you everything you need. And then when you line up your desires with him, it's amazing. He gives you everything you want because, man, they line up with the Lord. But really looking at that, technically speaking, it means more than just everything you need and everything you want. Uh, Philip Keller, he explains the phrase, the land flowing with milk and honey. And he said this, in agricultural terms, we speak of a milk flow and a honey flow. By this time, we mean we speak of the season of spring and summer when pastures are at their most productive stages. The livestock that feed on the forage and the bees that visit the blossoms are said to be producing a corresponding flow of milk or honey. So a land flowing with milk and honey is a land of rich, green, luxuriant pastures. And when God spoke of such a land for Israel... He also foresaw such an abundant life of joy and victory and contentment for his people. You see, and that's the life that God has for us. You know, they probably wouldn't have seen it when they were there in Egypt going through the hard times. But God would use that hard times, you know, to give them what they need, to give them character. As a matter of fact, the Bible says the more they afflicted them, the more they grew. You know, and maybe you're here today and you're going through hard times and there you are in Egypt, so to speak, and you're being afflicted and you're suffering. Understand this, that as a child of God, God's going to use that to, you know, help you grow in ways that otherwise you would have never, ever grown. And so he says right there, when you do that whole thing, you bring your tithe. He says there in verse 11, so you shall rejoice and every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. And God says, now you can have a party, man. You go, you give to God what belongs to God, and then you go and you celebrate. And that's the cool thing about God, huh? Is that we get to exalt him and we get to enjoy him. I, I love that about the Lord. Really, in chapter 26, it's about loving God. And also, it's about loving uh, the people, the two great commandments. Because look what we read next in verse 12. It says, And when you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. 
I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us, just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so right off the top, you'd give to the Lord. But then right here, we have a special tithe every third year. Um, and what that was was a special tithe that would go to help the, the less fortunate, you know, um, the stranger, the widow, the orphan, and the Levite as well. And in seeing that, you guys, I think we have a good understanding of what God wants us to do with our finances, especially if we've been blessed. We read earlier in Deuteronomy 14:28 through 29, that at the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. And so apparently this was a special tithe set aside for the poor. And in looking at that, I think it's cool, you guys. We see what God has entrusted to us, man, to give to the work of the ministry and to give to those who are less fortunate. That's what God wants us to really be caught up in. And when you go, this is kind of an interesting thing, and when you bring this sacred tithe or this you know, special tithe, you would say uh, this right here. Now, again, you're supposed to, I don't know if you memorize it or if you read it, but notice again what you're supposed to say. Okay, you're supposed to say this in verse 13. I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, According to all your commandments, which you have commanded me, I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. And so you're supposed to go to the Lord and you're supposed to be able to say that. I have not transgressed your commandments. I have not forgotten them. And so you can't really say that unless you, unless you do that, huh? And it's all part of God's way of moving them, motivating them to live a life of obedience. You know, I especially like what we read right there at the end of verse 13, you guys. It says, I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. You know, because I think that that's what can happen a lot of times in our life. Psalm 119, 141, it says, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Psalm 119, 153, it says, Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Psalm 119, 176 says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. It's kind of interesting. Go back, if you would, to chapter 25. Look at the end of verse 19. He's talking about Amalek, and he says, You shall not forget. Uh, don't forget. Don't forget to crucify the flesh. <laughs> and then over here he says, man, don't forget. Don't forget the word of God. And you know, we do that by being in the word of God. We do that by having a heart for God. We do that, you guys, by memorizing scripture, by meditating on scripture so that we could live a life that would bring God honor. 
And so we read in verse 15, this is still part of the prayer. It says, look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people, Israel, and the land which you have given us, just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. You know, God here um, asked them to pray that he would look down upon them. And it's so cool, you guys, because we can pray that prayer and God sees what we're going through. Not only does he look down, he comes down, right? He came down. That's the God that we serve. And so we see in verse 16, it says, This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments and his judgments and that you will obey his voice. And also today the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made in praise and name and honor and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God just as he has spoken. Here we see the Lord saying, man, it's a covenant that, that, that you're entering. You know, on this day, as you know, you do this before the Lord and you do this publicly and openly, what ends up happening is you're saying, God, you're my God. And God would then respond to that by saying, cool, and you're my people. He said, and when you're holy, I will lift you up and I will bless you. He's talking to Israel as a nation. And next week when we get in chapter 27 and 28, the cursings and the blessings, we're going to see that. And it's so cool, you guys, when you enter into that covenant with the Lord, he becomes your God. You become his holy people, his special people. It's an amazing thing, man, this relationship that we enter into. But, you know, one of the things that I think we really need to have etched in our heart is it's not just like, you know, a haughty thing. Like, hey, do you know who I am, you know? Um, What it is, is uh, it's a responsibility that we have now, you know, to, to do what? To obey him. You know, to obey the Lord. You know, and you could probably think of all the little things that God calls you to do, uh, to drive the speed limit, you know, we'll say stuff like that, you know, uh, to make sure you pay your taxes, um, you know, things like that. There's little things that we can think of all along the way, you know, try your best to get to work on time, to, to be a hard worker. I mean, we can think of all those things that God calls us to do. But, but to me, man, you know, the primary things uh, are the callings in our life, and the callings in our family. And as we do that, as we're husbands, I think of me, I've got to love my wife the way Christ loved the church. I've got to lead my children to God. I've got to be an example to them. I've, you know, certain responsibilities that are like the big ones in life. A lot of times we're okay. We do the speed limit. We make it to work on time. We pay our taxes. But Jesus said you neglect the weightier matters of the law. And I think for us, not praying, not really doing those things that God calls us to do sometimes, is, man, you know, we really miss the heart of God. God said, listen, I'm I'm your God, 
and and you are, are are my people. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute, man. You know, this is God speaking to Israel. You know, I'm not a Jew. Um, but remember what we read in the New Testament that the the church has been grafted in, huh? That now we are recipients of these promises. That we have these privileges and these benefits as well. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. You are. And God looks down and God takes care of you and, and God is working in you and God is leading your life. But notice what he says there in 1 Peter 2, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You guys, we're here for the Lord. And I just pray, man, that we would never, ever, ever forget that. That by God's grace, man, you know, we see him here in the Old Testament and and then we see him in the New Testament. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He's given us that righteousness. He's given us now that responsibility to go out and to win the world for Christ, man. I pray, you guys, that we would have this in our heart, that we would take these principles and really apply, apply them to our life. You know, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time now, and you're thinking, well, you know, I've already changed, you know. I've kind of done some things. You know, I've been a Christian for a long time now, too. I mean, I think I have. I got saved in 1989, right? But I'm telling you this, man. I feel like a new believer. I feel like in one sense, like God still wants to do so much more in my life as a husband, as a dad, as a servant. And I'm excited about that, man. And I'm excited about that for your life as well. Because some of you here have been believers for a long time. Some of you are new believers and you're just starting off. But I'm telling you this right now, man. God is moving. God is moving. And as we just come under this grace, under this love that he gives us, you're going to see miracles happen even in your own life, in your own character, in your own family, man. So let's see what God will do if we give him everything if we give him our heart let's pray lord we just thank you so much father for your word lord god tonight father there's a lot of principles here whether it be justice or um, family lord god whether it be crucifying the flesh or giving to you off the top um, lord helping the poor there's just so many things lord that we see here But I know this, Lord God, that you called Israel to be holy because you wanted them to shine in a dark world. And so, Lord, I pray that we would catch that vision, Lord, that we would live for you, that we would bring you glory, and that we would help people to live in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you are sufficient, that you have given us everything that we need. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And so, Lord, I pray that grace would fall on us today. I pray that you would honor those. They, they came out to church in a, in a midweek service, and they, and they wanted to seek you, Lord God. They wanted to find you, Lord. 
They wanted to hear from you. And, and Lord, even in spite of everything that's happened up to this point, I pray that even now, God, you would meet them here and that your grace would fall on us, the love, the life that you have for us, Father God. We thank you so much, Lord, that you are enough, that your grace is sufficient, and that you do want to do a new work in our life. I pray for anybody here, Lord, who maybe doesn't know you, who's not a Christian, or maybe they drifted away, that tonight would be the night that they would enter into that covenant, or that tonight would be the night for every single person here to surrender their lives completely to you. We do love you, Father. We thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.